And let's look at uh, John 12 together, and we'll start reading from verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. For all of us, there is something that we worship. Uh, Regardless of background, regardless of age, regardless of nationality uh, or social standing in the eyes of the world, at the centre of our lives is something that we are worshipping. And um, it doesn't require us to be particularly religious people. Now, this is not scripture, but... uh, I think in the 1600s, a declaration of faith was written down in the form of questions, and it's called the, the Westminster Catechism. And it says this, question number one, what is the chief and highest end of man? In other words, what is the main, the most important purpose of our lives? What is the ultimate focus of our lives to be? And the response to that question is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. God knows that it's best for us if he is at the center of our lives and is the one that we are worshiping. He's the one that we are uh, giving glory to. So, When Jesus was asked a question in uh, Matthew chapter 22, someone asks him there what the most important command is. He responds in verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Uh, This is the first and greatest commandment. So our chief and highest end, the biggest purpose in our lives, the central aim is to bring glory to Jesus. And what that uh, Westminster Catechism, what the answer to that first question also points out, is that in giving glory to God, in living for his worship, actually it does most good to us. Because it goes on to say, and fully to enjoy him forever. Let's just quickly look at Psalm 16. Psalm 16. And right at the end there, verse 11. It says this, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. There are certain pleasures, there are certain treasures, as it were, that come and go in the course of time. In God, we've got eternal treasures or eternal pleasures that are just that. They are eternal. They never run out. So to worship God is for us also the most satisfying purpose our lives can have. What we see here in John chapter 12 is an example of a woman, Mary, worshipping Jesus in really the most extravagant way that was possible for her at that time. And so we're going to look at what it means to worship Jesus, what it means to be an extravagant worshipper of Jesus, 
extravagant worship, we could sum it up like this, is something here that Mary demonstrates, Judas objects to, and Jesus accepts. Let's first of all look at Mary. Mary demonstrates extravagant worship. It's extravagant, first of all, because what she does in going to Jesus, as it says in verse 3, taking a pint of pure nards, this uh, this expensive perfume, and pouring it on Jesus' feet, wiping his feet with her hair, what she was doing was something that was incredibly unusual, unexpected, and perhaps even unnecessary from just a practical point of view. And to sum up, really, it looks kind of daft. What she did looked, let's face it, just a tad on the weird side. And uh, again, we, we find another extravagant worshipper in the Bible who didn't mind looking daft uh, in King David in the Old Testament. So when we look at, for example, uh, the book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 6, we find there this situation where David, who is now king, uh, wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And first of all, he does that in a way uh, that was not in the way that God had laid out as the right way to do it. But he then comes back to do it properly. And really, we, we see this massive party unfolding, this huge procession, as David and the whole of the nation of Israel accompany with great singing and exuberance the Ark of the Covenant back into um, into Jerusalem. It's a real, it's a real party. They, they sacrifice a fattened calf and a bull, and there's a lot of song, there's a lot of dancing. And um, as a result of that feast as well, David, as like a, a kind of um, a generous freebie, gives to everyone uh, a nice loaf of bread and the rest of it just to say, let's really celebrate what's happening. And you think, well, surely that would be enough. Surely that would be enough to honor God. The king has made sure that all that happens, and maybe the, the king could preside over that event with real kind of regal uh, dignity and so on, that it, it was enough to make sure that celebration happened, but then just to make sure that he himself was still very prim, very proper, um, keeping up all manner of appearances in a very appropriate way. What we find David doing is, is dancing his, his socks off. Um, it describes there in verse 14, David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and a sound of trumpets. Rather than dressing up in his royal garb, David dresses down in a linen ephod to ensure that he's got most freedom of movement to express himself physically to praise his God. This is the king of the whole country. Surely he should have just been a little bit more uh, dignified, a little bit more... Stand, maybe stand back and let, let others uh, do that. But he is so enthralled, his focus is so on uh, the majesty and splendor of God's presence that he's more focused on that than he, than he is on his own appearance. And later on, his, his wife, uh, Michael, kind of chastises him for looking so undignified. And uh, her focus is on what he looks like. His focus is on his God. And so he's not concerned with those appearances. He's not concerned with, with looking daft. We can tend to be focused on our external appearance. We might not think in terms of, of dignity um, and being regal uh, like a king or a queen. But on the whole, and maybe to varying degrees, we do regard our physical appearance as a big deal. That presents us with a massive challenge. And a massive challenge in particular for what I might term the, the new day or fusion uh, generation. So if you're between the ages of, of 12 and 20, I think our culture, and if you're following Jesus, our culture gives you an impossible challenge. There is no way to meet this challenge, but our culture sets it. Worship God and look cool at the same time. I guarantee, in the eyes of our culture... You cannot do it. 
when culture in heaven and in eternity is perfectly centred on Jesus, we'll not be looking daft by totally letting our hair down to glorify him. But in this world, in this body, we will look daft if we want to worship Jesus. My own experience um, as, a, as a 15 or 16-year-old, um, having gone, I was just recently introduced to the kind of the experience of these very big uh, Christian youth events where um, the lights are turned down and the volume are turned up. Um, and uh, I was at one such event, and above the stage, much like that, with a big screen, but maybe three or four times the size of that. And rather than just having the words on as we were worshipping God, uh, there's a camera at the back of the hall, uh, which is kind of focusing on the stage, but is moving around a bit at the same time. And so as well as looking at the words, you're kind of seeing whatever the camera puts up there. And um, in my eagerness, I made the mistake of sitting way too far the front and way too much in the middle, that as the camera sweeps round and I'm worshipping God, I suddenly see the back of my own head. And so I'm thinking, Lord, I really want to worship you, but not looking like that. Oh, my word, that's atrocious. That was in the days where I, I had hair. God has wonderfully removed that challenge from me now. I don't really <laughs> mind at all. So just watch out, you know. <laughs> uh, God might make it easier for you. Um, but <laughs> that, that's what we can experience, uh, even in settings like this. And particularly if you are going to, to New Day, uh, maybe that's something that you will experience in particular, that you, you love Jesus, you're really getting into it. But um, you know, how much time are you going to spend doing your hair? How much, I mean, even that's something now that guys seem to spend a lot of time doing, if they've got any. Um, how, how much time? How important is that to you? How important is your own physical appearance? How important is it for you to look cool uh, all the time? And how important is it for you just to enjoy meeting with God and to enjoy uh, worship? For, for women, and for young women in particular, I'll just draw your attention uh, to what Paul says uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 onwards, I also want, and this is talking actually in the context of the church, and in the context of worshipping God, he says this, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and with propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now, is the point there that you are really in God's bad books if you happen to be wearing pearls this morning, I don't really think so. Um, but what that is highlighting, and for the purposes of this morning, what we want to just bring out of that is, yeah, we can be so preoccupied with, with what we're looking like on the outside. And perhaps then, related to that is, what do other people think about what I look like? What are other people, how do people assess me? And really, in terms of eternal worth, far better that you get to heaven and God says, well done, in my sight you are beautiful, than people who perhaps don't even know God themselves on the earth think that you look attractive. Neither is that saying don't spend any efforts or money on your appearance, just you know, do your best to look as dowdy um, as possible and as unattractive as possible, but it's just saying what's your preoccupation? Are you unhelpfully preoccupied with your physical appearance? In one of the other accounts of this story that we're looking at, uh, as we'll see later on, when Jesus defends what Mary has done, he says this, in Matthew and Mark say like this, she has done a beautiful thing for me. And so Jesus' verdict of Mary, even though she looked daft in this particular situation, Jesus' verdict was no, she's done something that's absolutely beautiful. Don't you want to hear that? I mean, I spoke to the guys as well. Don't you want to, to kind of know that? In a sense, that's what God does think. That's what Jesus' verdict of us is. That he uh, has loved us with an everlasting love and he's set his seal of ownership upon us so that he looks to each and every one of us uh, who's committed our lives to him and following Jesus and says, I love you. I accept you. You're my son. You're my daughter. This is what I think of you. I delight in you and I sing songs over you. That is amazing. And that is to be, as it were, what really captivates our vision. 
not getting a preoccupation with well, what do other people think about me? How do other people assess my appearance? And not dissimilarly, and hopefully this isn't stretching the scripture too much, uh, in 1 Timothy as well, in chapter 4, something I'd just like to mention to men, and maybe young men in particular. 1 Timothy 4, and uh, we'll read from verse 7. It says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. Um, and the verb there that's used to describe train is kind of conjuring up the, the, the image of athletic training, fitness training. But it says in verse 8, For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And so, particularly perhaps for young men, are you uh, preoccupied with uh, sporting ability? Are you preoccupied with your fitness level and perhaps what people think of you when you're wearing a tight t-shirt? Does it demonstrate that you have uh, an excellently defined six-pack? Um, again, I say it slightly flippantly, but at the same time, it can be a preoccupation. We can be unhelpfully preoccupied with sporting prowess, with physical fitness. And there are some benefits, that's what the scripture is saying. There are some benefits, both to health, in terms of personal discipline, but actually training ourselves for knowing God has value in every situation of life. The fact that you can run fast won't necessarily help you when you get married and you need to kind of shoulder the burden of being a husband and leading your household. But being godly and training yourself in knowing God, training yourself in knowing how to stand firm in faith when you meet challenges that are difficult to say the least, that is going to put you in amazing good stead. So physical appearance, we can be focused on it, but let's train ourselves to be focused on knowing and worshipping God. And we might think, well, yeah, sure, that, that then has application for young people. I can see how that has application uh, for people going off to New Day and so on. But what about the rest of us? Well, it does have, I think, application for what happens in times like this when we're coming together to worship God as a people. Now, for a little while, I puzzled over in verse 2 why we are told that Martha served and Lazarus was among those who reclined at the table with him. Why do we need to know that detail? And as I pondered that for a, a while, I I realized that actually what John is describing are activities that, um, that, that Martha and Lazarus were doing that were completely normal, that were completely appropriate. Were, there's nothing un, unusual about it, nor is there anything wrong with it. They were, Lazarus was there. He was there to honor Jesus. He was as a guest at this meal, and he was there to honor Jesus. Martha was there. She was there to serve. And she was doing that, honoring Jesus. And when we get together, there's a whole load of things that are low risk and appropriate. So that when we come together to worship God, we will sing together. And your voice might not be the most amazing voice in the pla on the planet. But the fact is we're all singing together. And so you don't particularly stand out of the crowd by just joining in with that. You might not even stand out from the crowd by clapping. And if a lot of people are really going for it, you won't stand out of the crowd by raising your hands. Sometimes, those aren't necessarily, certainly for us here, an unusual thing. But there are things that become more unusual and become more risky and become more daft looking as you step out in doing it. And, uh, and so we might, as we kind of go up the spectrum of daftness uh, in the eyes of the world, um, we'll come to uh, praying out. It's just your voice. Everybody else is quiet. And you feel to pray out. And you th might think, well, I've got a sense of the first sentence I might pray, but quite where is this going? I'm not sure. I, it could be that I just peter out and I don't know what to say. But here I am, I'm praying out. There's an element of, of darkness to that. Step on from that just a little bit, or maybe quite a lot, depending on who you are. Singing out by yourself. It's now not just your voice saying words. It's your voice singing. And maybe, you know, you're kind of unsure. Well, what melody shall I sing? What do I go for? I'm not really sure. Um, and I, I'm slightly faltering. 
well, I want to worship Jesus, so this is how I'm going to do it. Stepping on further again, coming to the mic, sharing something from the microphone. Maybe no one has done that yet. And you're there thinking, is this right? Should I bring this? What's the Holy Spirit saying at this point in time? Shall I share this or shall I not? And you've got a big step to make to kind of take that risk and say, well, I'm going to go for it anyway. I'm going to go for this. Praying out in tongues is also a risky thing because you don't know if anyone's going to interpret it. And you're speaking in a language that actually doesn't really make sense on the earth anyway. So it can all just look incredibly daft. And so there's a point where you kind of think, you can look around on a morning like today and think, who's, who's going to get that going? Who's going to be the first one? And sometimes as we're agonizing over shall I, shan't I, shall I pray out loud, shall I not, shall I come to the microphone and share what I feel God has brought, uh, is maybe brought to me, that can become slightly easier if some other people have already started to do that. And so you kind of think, oh, actually, well, so-and-so has shared this. What I've got fits in with what so-and-so's got. I feel more comfortable to do that. Now I know I'm not the only person who's about to do it. That is a bit easier. And, and that's true. And that helps. But you kind of think, Who, who's going to get the ball rolling? Someone's got to look daft first. Someone's got to take the first risk. Someone's got to step out first. And so this morning, in a sense, I guess by coming to the mic, uh, Rachel took the step, I'm going to share, I'm going to bring a testimony to Jesus. And obviously before that, people have prayed out. And then after that, other things start to happen as well. Because someone's kind of broken out of the ranks. Someone's literally got out from the chairs. I think, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm going to worship God. And there's a risk to it, and it can look silly. Um, but again, Jesus would say, well, what a beautiful thing. And as that happens, we find that we are ourselves just strengthened as we worship God. So 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 says, What then shall we say, brothers? When you get together, each one has a hymn, a word of instruction or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. All these things must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now sometimes it's right that we think, you know, what is the Holy Spirit saying what's the right time but sometimes we can agonize over those questions should I bring it should I not is it the right time is it in step with other people's contributions will anyone interpret if I share a tongue and those agonizations those questions that we agonize over can I say gently can be a cover they can be a disguise for self-love they can be a disguise that in other words we're saying I don't want to look like a wally. Jesus, I love you, so I will sing. I might even clap. But I don't want to look like a wally. So don't tell me to do anything. If, I, if, this is gonna, if I'm going to end up with egg on my face, and tell me now, because I won't do it. And then maybe someone else will bring something, and, and, and the thing will move on. And all that I'm doing is just throwing open the challenge. That actually, when we get together, the scripture is true. The scripture is true that each one has a hymn or a word of instruction, a testimony, a tongue. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone's going to do something, but it means that we can all hear God, and God doesn't have quiet Sundays. God doesn't have a Sunday when he's thinking, I don't really have much to say today. I, I'm not really that involved today. They can just get on with it. They can just do the norm. Now, there are normal ways of serving. There are normal ways, as it were, that we all participate in worship. But let's be a people like Mary, like David as well, who are comfortable because we're secure in Christ to do what might be unexpected, to do what might look daft. How, there's more to what Mary's extravagant worship looks like. It's unexpected, it's unusual. It even looks a tad unnecessary because this is a meal that was in Jesus' honour. And so the chances are that uh, there would have been servants there who would have tended to all the guests, who would have done what Jesus did a chapter later and, and washed the guests' feet and show all the normal signs of courtesy in that, in that culture. Again, so, so Mary didn't need to do it. It wasn't a case of needing to do it. It was a case of an overflow of her love for Jesus. Jesus 
has just, um, or a few days previously, has raised her brother from the dead. And she's quite happy about that. And she's in love with Jesus. And so she sees this opportunity and she grabs it with both hands. This is how I want to worship Jesus. This is how I'm going to worship Jesus today. I'm not going to use the pure nard again. Almost, this is like a one-off special occasion. But this is the opportunity that I have to worship Jesus. It was unexpected. It was unusual. It was even pragmatically unnecessary. But that's what her extravagant worship looked like. It is also extravagant for this reason, that it was personally costly to her. This nard, this perfume, was extremely expensive. Judas, later on, estimates it worth. He estimates its worth uh, at literally um, 300 denarii, uh, when one denarius is one day's wage for a working man. So factor in holidays and... Uh, and Sabbaths, and today that might mean something like £20,000. She has a jar of £20,000 worth of perfume. And thinking about that, and this is pure speculation, why did she have it? What was she planning to use it for? Surely, if it was worth so much, this wasn't the kind of perfume that was what she used every day, And she just had a little bit left over, so she gave it to Jesus. This was something that she was keeping. Maybe it was part of a dowry. Maybe it was effectively her pension. And so, in a sense, this thing of great worth, she's giving up in one one kind of act, one moment, actually has ongoing repercussions for the rest of her life. She's not going to get that back. She's just, in a sense, in material terms lost £20,000 because she devoted it to Jesus. It was a huge sacrifice. And so, extravagant worship to Jesus is not just what happens when we meet together. Extravagant worship is what happens when people in this room have made decisions that are personally costly to them, but they've decided to do it as their devotion to the Lord. And there are loads of potential examples. And I will bring to your attention one example in the life of this church of what I deem to be extravagant worship of the order that Mary demonstrated. A little over ten years, Arnold and Mary were living in Hampshire. Um, from their young, uh, early 20s, uh, right through for 29 or 30 years, They had been living in a village in Hampshire. Arnold had been leading a church for that time. They had grown, as it were, together in their marriage and together seeing their children grow up alongside other families who were at the same age and stage that they were at. Then God said, move to Sheffield to a struggling church where you are not known and where there is a lot of hard graft ahead of you. But I have great plans and there'll be much fruit. That's, like I say, a little over ten years ago, Arnold and Mary's response was, Yes, Lord, we're going. There was personal cost in that. Personal cost to do with now a distance from those close relationships. Personal cost to coming into somewhere where you're not known and then leading a church which has been through a rocky road anyway, and wanted to bring that through. And so their response was, yes, Lord, we're going. Now, when Mark describes this event in Mark chapter 14 and verse 3, describes there what Mary did in a little bit more detail, and it says, she broke the jar and poured the perfume out. In other words, when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with this perfume, she was holding nothing back in reserve. She broke that jar and all of the perfume would have come out and we're told that the, the fragrance of that perfume filled the house. Mary used it all. And in a sense, that is a description of what extravagant worship involves. It's, Jesus, you are going to have it all. You're going to have all of what I have to give. You have 
You have it all. You're worthy of it all. I'm holding no elements of my life back in reserve, but I'll worship you in this way. But this, this I, I retain my ownership of this. It's extravagant. It's all for Jesus. And in John, back in John 12, verse 3, it says, And the, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the, pe- of the perfume. So when we uh, worship God, perhaps in these um, unique opportunities that present themselves, when we worship God in these extravagant ways, it has the effect of filling the whole house with the perfume. In other words, there's just something, there's something fragrant. Jesus was anointed with perfume, but actually everything in that house was affected, and everybody probably went away with, with the aroma, with the, with the fragrance attached to them. And so, when people make decisions about where to live and about what to do uh, with our lives, when there are perhaps decisions that involve um, a sacrifice, but actually for the joy of knowing Jesus and worshipping him, we count it all as nothing. In those moments of sacrifice, there is an, a, there's a, a release of fragrance. There is a release of just pleasing aroma that brings glory to Jesus' name. Extravagant worship, Mary, Mary demonstrates it. Judas objects to it. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Uh, it's worth a year's wages. And at face value, uh, that objection uh, could seem to have a point. Surely, this, this, if that perfume had been sold, a lot of good would have been able to, uh, to have been achieved with it. Um, and it would appear that Judas has a point. Uh, however, whilst that objection may appear noble, and whilst actually others began to agree with it, the disciples and other people who were present, Matthew and Mark tell us, said, yeah, yeah, why this waste? Um, John goes, goes on to explain the motivation behind Judas' Judas's point in verse 6. It says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So up until this point, Judas has been attempting to keep one foot in two camps. So he's, in, in one camp, he has put his foot, the, the following Jesus camp um, is over here. And uh, in this camp, what he's experienced is three years of, of following Jesus as his disciple. In that time, he'd heard Jesus teaching, he'd seen how Jesus reacts under pressure when attempts were made on his life. He's seen Jesus perform miracles like calming the storm, feeding 5,000 people from just a few loaves and fish, setting people free from demons. Judas himself, along with the, with the 12, has also been sent out ahead of Jesus to go into other towns and villages to preach the good news, calling people to repent, healing the sick, releasing people from demonic oppression, and seeing God do amazing things. And most recently, Judas has seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. That is what Judas has experienced and seen over here. Quite an amazing three years. But both feet aren't there. He's got another foot right over there in another camp. And the other foot is in the money camp or in the mammon camp. So whilst all that's happening over here, all this amazing stuff, walking and talking with Jesus in everyday life, seeing all that he can do, seeing his power, seeing his grace, seeing his mercy, seeing him heal, over here, at the same time, he's stealing money from the group's funds. And perhaps, we don't know for how long, harboring thoughts of betrayal. So what, whatever his motive for betraying Jesus as he went on to do. He's been trying to walk this impossible line between two camps. Trying to walk this way with Jesus, to to appearances sake at least, and trying to walk this way to serve money. 
And it's an impossible situation. It, it, you can't, as Jesus says in, in Matthew 6 and verse 24, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You'll either love one and hate the other, or you'll love this one and hate the other. There, there is really no middle ground. And, and Judas has been pretending that there is. And it can resolve one of two ways. Like Zacchaeus, who we looked at a couple of weeks back, he could walk away from the love of money and firmly into God's camp and pursue that relationship with Jesus, become an apostle and see the church of Jesus explode over the world. Or he could reject Jesus and pursue money. And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. How, how do you serve money? Well, you ser- we serve money by centering life around it and doing all that we can to make sure that we enjoy the benefits it has to offer in every situation. And so we'll make sacrifices to all the other stuff in life because we want to make sure we maximize our enjoyment of money. And so there is... Uh, the, the workaholic who sacrifices time with family and sacrifices uh, time uh, in the church because the, the main goal, the main priority is to make sure we get, I get all the benefits that money has to offer me. And if I don't quite manage to make enough, then I'm still going to go for the things that I want, even though I can't afford them. And I'll get myself into debt, and I'll get myself into all that damage and hardship, because I want these things. I want those kind of holidays. I want that kind of lifestyle. I want people to think well of me because I'm wearing those kind of clothes. I need to go this way. Serving money. And that's, that's one direction. The other direction, um, like Zacchaeus, as we've looked, is actually I see that all the stuff that I've been pursuing in my life before this point is, is shallow and hollow and does not satisfy me and ruins my life. And so actually, I'm rejecting that rather stupid aim of life. And so I am going to come right over here, both feet firmly in this camp. I'm following Jesus. And that is the, again, Judas was trying to to walk this impossible line. And verse 4 hints at the direction Judas was tending towards. Because it says, in verse 4, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him. Now what we know from later on, again from from the accounts of Matthew and Mark, is that this situation, seeing what Mary did, was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And from that point on, Judas made the definite decision, it's money, not Jesus. And so so rather than heading towards a greater use of his wealth for the glory of God and for blessing others, he, um, he was heading towards betraying Jesus in order to gain 30 pieces of silver coin for himself. And so for us... Compromise is any situation in which we're trying to have a foot in two camps, trying to worship two different gods. It can be, um, as it was for Judas, Jesus and money. I'm going to attempt to serve both. Now, obviously, money plays a factor, plays a role in any of our lives. But what we're talking about here is, is serving money, i.e. it is at the center of decisions. It is at the center of my focus and my attention. So it can be uh, Jesus and money. We serve money in those ways we just we kind of looked at by trying to make sure that we maximize um, the, the benefits it can bring to us. And we, we may view, therefore, fulfillment and contentment in life is about making sure that we have everything we want or enough to, uh, to kind of get the lifestyle that we've always wanted. I have to have it. Um, Paul says in Philippians and verse 4, 
something helpful. Uh, Philippians 4, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Well, what then was the secret? How, how had Paul learned the secret of handling the fact that treasures come and treasures go in a moment? That There were times when he was in plenty, and he gave thanks for it. And he didn't reject it. There were times, though, when he was not in plenty. And he didn't rile at God because of what he couldn't afford. Instead, he knew the secret. He'd he'd learnt the lesson. He'd understood that actually my treasure is Jesus. My most treasured possession, as it were, the, the, the most valuable thing ever in this life is the joy, is the closeness, is the intimacy is the pleasure of knowing that I'm with Jesus, that he's forgiven me now and for all time, and I'll be with him in eternity. And right now, I get to walk with him. Right now, I get to live with him and live for him and know all the benefits and all the pleasures and all the spiritual blessings, one after another, that he wants to give to me. Whether I'm in plenty or not, I know his favor. I know his goodness in my life. That was his situation. So that's Jesus and money. There can be other ways in which we we can uh, drift into compromise where we're trying to serve uh, two different gods. Jesus and money, and for some people, some of us at different times, maybe it has been, Jesus and relationships. In other words, in this camp, I'm following Jesus. And in this camp, I'm pursuing a relationship with someone who isn't following Jesus. And... It's impossible to do that. It's got to resolve one way or another. And sometimes, graciously, by God's grace, it's resolved that the person not knowing Jesus in a relationship has themselves come to know Jesus. And so that relationship kind of moves on under the lordship of Jesus. But quite a lot of times, it resolves in the other direction. Someone has to choose. Am I going to follow Jesus? Am I going to pursue this relationship with someone else? It's a a conflict of interests. And often what can happen, uh, again, sometimes for young people, is that they they will drift, they'll make a decision to go out with someone, and it will then drift to say, actually, I'm just going for this now. By default, I'm leaving Jesus behind, and I'm, I'm going to pursue Jesus. And again, like money, we can think, all my fulfillment is is here. All my fulfillment, all my satisfaction in life will come because I've got into this relationship. Ignoring the fact, again, that the truth is that actually all fulfillment, all satisfaction in life comes by living over this side with Jesus, where he is our Lord and Master. Again, in uh, Paul says something helpful uh, broadly on this subject in uh, 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, he says, in no uncertain terms, verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Which way will it go? Which way will it resolve? And sometimes, actually, there would be pain in either way. If it resolves this way, coming to Jesus, there's still going to be pain to actually cutting off this close relation or association with someone you've been wanting to uh, be romantic with. There's going to be pain. But far better that sort of pain than the pain that comes the other way when you realize you have drifted far and it's more painful then to uh, uh, maybe then recognize down the line actually all along this relationship has been based on the wrong foundation because we're not both following Jesus. And in fact, I'm not now following Jesus because I want to make sure this relationship works. Well, maybe the relationship needs to end and we'll come back over here to this point. Now that might not apply 
to any or maybe many people in the room. But I can guarantee at some point uh, it will. And we need to be a people who recognize where our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate fulfillment in life comes from. And there can be painful decisions when we realize in respect of money or in respect of relationships or in respect of anything else for that matter, we've had a foot in two camps. Let's make sure that our direction is towards Jesus. Let's ensure that our, our direction is towards him, not just trying to make a compromised situation last a little bit longer. Mary demonstrates extravagant worship. Judas objects to extravagant worship of Jesus. And finally, Jesus accepts this extravagant worship that comes to him. Now, it would be possible, up until this point, having focused particularly on Mary, that we could develop an unhelpful focus on just how amazing her act of worship was, how dedicated she was, and on the value of her gift. And if we did that, we could become um, sort of inappropriately focused on the value of what we've got to give to Jesus. And then the focus is on uh, how impressive we are in our worship. What Jesus does is bring attention onto himself. And what I love about this is, first of all, um, speaking to Judas in particular, because in verse 7 he's speaking uh, in the singular, he says, leave her alone. And as we've already seen, um, or as you would see if you looked in um, Matthew 26 or Mark 14, when they recount the same event, um, it says, she's done a beautiful thing. Jesus totally defends this lady who's done something so extravagant and unusual in her worship of Jesus. He defends her. But in so doing, he's taking the attention off of her and he's placing it onto himself. He's saying, in effect, this is about me. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. What is fascinating about this period in the Gospels is that the closer we get to Jesus' death on on the cross, this process of preparation is taking place all the way through. The people of Israel, at this point in time, they are preparing for a massive annual celebration feast called the Passover, where they remember how years previously, when they had been captive and enslaved in Egypt, God rescued them by many miraculous signs. But the particular way that he rescued them was by um, saving them from, um, from death, or saving the firstborn of every household. It was another sign that, that God was using to say to the Pharaoh of Egypt, let my people go. The Pharaoh uh, resists time after time after time after time until Jesus says, okay, well on this night, the, uh, the firstborn male of every household will die. And so in order to be saved, the Jewish people brought a lamb and they were told to get this lamb and bring it into the household on the 10th day of the first month. And then on the 14th day, they were to slaughter it and they were to use the blood of that animal and paint it on the doorposts of the house. And that would be the sign to God to pass over that house and not kill the firstborn. A lamb was needed. And so at this point in time, it's only a couple of days away now, before every household in Israel is going to get their unblemished perfect year-old male lamb is going to be in the house for a few days and on the 14th day they're going to slaughter it. That's what they're preparing for. Maybe the families are gathering together because this is a time to celebrate and remember what God has done in the past. Jesus is preparing for a new Passover. Everyone else is getting ready to commemorate the old covenant, commemorate what's happened in the past. Jesus as it were, alone, is preparing to inaugurate the new covenant. He's, he's coming to inaugurate or to start this new Passover. When he first turned up on the scene and was baptized by John, John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's Jesus, a meal in, in his honor, just a few days before the Passover is taking place. The Lamb of God 
who's going to take away the sin of the world, this Lamb of God who is soon to be slaughtered himself. And so he's saying, no, this perfume, this is not just about Mary, this is about me. This is about what I'm about to experience on behalf of the whole world. This is to prepare my body for burial. It's to prepare him for what came ahead. Jesus defends Mary. Jesus also defends the poor. In verse 8, we could, we could think, well, that sounds a little bit odd, that Jesus should say, you'll always have the poor among you. That could sound a little bit callous, could sound a bit uncaring. But actually, he's affirming the needs of the poor and affirming that we should pay attention to them. Uh, because in effect, he is almost word for word quoting the scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11 in what he says. Because there it says in Deuteronomy 15 and verse 11, there will always be poor people in the land. And maybe by saying that, Jesus was wanting the disciples to understand. And you remember the next bit, because the next bit says, therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your brothers and towards the poor and needy in your land. It was to be the norm. Now Judas is saying, maybe I can justify getting this money uh, by saying, oh, for a special occasion, Jesus, maybe we should give this to the poor. Well, Jesus is saying, no, this is, this is ordinary, ordinary everyday life, is to be attentive to the poor. But you won't have an opportunity to do this for me on another occasion. This was the only, as it were, opportunity for Mary to anoint Jesus with this nard as her act of extravagant worship before he was then to die, be buried, then raised to life. And so it was her decision, not reluctantly, not, as, uh, not under compulsion, as we heard earlier on. No, she spotted the opportunity. I want to worship Jesus. I'm going to worship Jesus in this way. Maybe, in a sense, she had intentions to use that perfume. Maybe she had intentions to use that perfume for Jesus' burial once he had died. But she realized, I'd rather demonstrate my worship to him now while he's with me and he's alive then demonstrate it to him when he is dead and before he goes into the grave. I want Jesus to know now that I love him. I want Jesus to know now that he is the center of my affection and my worship to him. I want it to be extravagant and I want to I give him all the glory. And that is for us our calling in life. Not exactly in the same ways necessarily, but to be worshippers of Jesus who are extravagant worshippers of Jesus. Not just having to copy how other people worship God, but actually all of us taking opportunities to say, Jesus, I love you. I don't regard this as important before you. You're my God and I love you like no other. You are my Lord and I want to worship you with all I have and with all that I am. Let's pray together.